0: Good to see you all. A special welcome to those of you who might be with us for the first time. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Illuminate. And if I haven't had the opportunity yet, I would love to get to meet you right after the service. will be hanging out right down in the front. If you got a couple of spare minutes to introduce yourself, that would be amazing. We, uh, we need to start by thanking you. You guys have been amazing in 2021. Your kindness your generosity your support for the ministries of the church has really been overwhelming this has been a year of incredible blessing for our church you have participated in amazing ways whether it be through our gift boxes as jimmy said providing things for the homeless participating in our mobile kitchen our project christmas tree angel tree you guys have just been amazing not to mention all of your support and contributions to the bigger, smaller, deeper vision of the church, which we've been laying out over this last year, expanding our influence not only within these walls but beyond our walls. So many of you have contributed to that. We want to finish the year well. If you haven't participated with us in that yet, you can do so. You can hit that QR code. You can give online, offering boxes in the back, but on behalf of so many people, literally the thousands of people, again, not only within these walls, but outside of these walls, thank you for your generosity. So, uh, believe it or not, uh, this Sunday today is the last Sunday of Advent. As we've been saying all along, the word Advent means arrival. For hundreds of years, Christians have taken the four Sundays preceding Christmas, and they celebrate the birth of Jesus, his arrival. But we've been doing things in a a way that isn't very traditional. Traditionally, Advent season has you talking about love, hope, joy, peace. Those are the traditional Advent themes. But what we've been looking at are the different titles that the Bible applies to Jesus. It's sort of the so what. What is the meaning of the incarnation? Incarnation is the big word that simply means God took on human form and dwelt among men. What does that mean? Well, there are titles applied to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. These are all functions of different individuals during Old Testament times, the ancient people of God. God led them through these individuals, and they were human, so they were at best directed by God, but also fallen. And so when these titles are applied to Jesus, he's the ultimate expression of each one of them. For example, as prophet, he speaks on behalf of the family, because he is God's son. So he's a very personal representative. When he speaks, it's as if the words of God are spoken. Not only did he foretell of future events, but think about it. He predicted his own death, burial and resurrection, and then he fulfilled them. No other prophet has done that before. He comes on the scene with the title of priest. Priests were men who intervened on behalf of the people offering forgiveness of sins, but this had to be done over and over again on the Day of Atonement once a year. Jesus comes on the scene and the scriptures say, he died once for all. He is our perfect high priest because it wasn't about an animal sacrifice, it was about the perfect sacrifice of Jesus shedding his own blood. He's the ultimate priest. He's also a king. Huge thanks to Pastor Hudson for bringing the word last week. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He exchanged that crown of thorns for a royal crown. You read the book of Revelation, he is returning and all of creation will be renewed and it will be under his authority, reign, and rule. But there's this one title that's reserved just for him and that is Savior of the world. It's a really intriguing one. No other man held that title. And so, to help us understand more of what this means, we're going to look at one of my favorite texts in the New Testament from John chapter 4. And it has to do with Jesus as Savior, a woman who is of... Well, basically everything you can imagine about her is wrong from a cultural, contextual standpoint. She's of the, the wrong sex. She's the wrong lifestyle. She's the wrong race. It just seems like everything about her is just wrong. And yet, Jesus meets her right where she's at. Now, also in the story are two different sources of water. One is a well, and the other is a spring. Now, you know, I'm born and bred here in the valley. I don't know much about springs or wells, but when I was a kid, I grew up on the intersection of Pima and McDonald Road and right across the street there to the east of Pima is the Pima Reservation. And so when I was a kid my friends and I we'd ride our bikes over in the summertime and had these massive massive irrigation pipes and when those things were turned on huge amounts of water would come <laughs> rushing through these things down these little ditches from which the fields were watered, and so my friends and I would swim in those little ditches and catch crawdads and have all kinds of kid fun back. That's what we did back in the day. We were outside. It's kind of fun. And when I read John chapter 4, I, I, I'm kind of reminded of that. That's about as close as I get to a spring or a well. Now, let me give you the back story, okay? John, our author, is a very close personal friend of Jesus, perhaps one of Jesus' best friends, if not his best friend. He's known as John the Beloved. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he looks at John and he says, John, will you take care of my mom for me? That's how you know a close friend. When you know you're going to be leaving, you need someone to look after mom. John, will you take care of mom for me in my absence? So he writes a biography about the life of Jesus. That's what you have in your hands. It's a You have a collection of biographies. That's actually the New Testament. The Gospels record the life of Jesus. John had a front row seat. So he he writes about what it was like to observe Jesus, to live with him and experience who he was. And in John chapters 2 and 3, he records the ways in which people respond to Jesus, not unlike how people respond to him today. So in chapter 2, Jesus is met with opposition. Essentially, he's rejected. And he's rejected by, you ready for it? He's rejected by religious people. Essentially, the church-going people of Jesus' day, they don't like him, the religious leaders especially, you know, because they had all the authority and the power, and Jesus had this way of saying, you see, you guys don't practice what you preach. And because you don't practice what you preach, you actually don't know God. You claim to speak on behalf of God, but that's not the voice of God that you're listening to. And they hated him for it. They rejected him. And then in chapter 3, one member of that group, a guy named Nicodemus, he's very open-hearted and open-minded because there are certain things that he observes in Jesus that he cannot deny. He sees the miracles, and he's like, okay, there's got to be something special about this guy. Sure seems like he comes to us from God. So he has questions, so he approaches Jesus under the cover of darkness. And he's asking questions and that's the famous you must be born again conversation. Nicodemus, you've been born once physically but there is a second birth, it's a spiritual birth and that's what you don't have and that's found through me. And then you get to John chapter four and there's the story of this woman at the well. And what it tells us is that Jesus doesn't wait for you to clean up your junk. Praise God, thank you Jesus for that. He doesn't wait for you to have everything figured out. You know, what's interesting, the Bible says it's, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the other way around. It's not like, hey, repent, get yourself together, and then maybe God will be kind to you. No, it's when you consider the kindness of God that he initiated a relationship with you, your heart begins to melt a bit and you change. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. And so, what you see in this text is Jesus bestowing kindness and dignity to somebody others would look at and say, She doesn't deserve it. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the baptizer. This guy held the record on baptisms. You know, John the baptizer, that was his name. John the baptizer. He was known for baptizing people, and his baptism was one of repentance. Hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Be prepared for it. Get right with God. He was also paving the way for a forthcoming Messiah, When he sees Jesus, John the baptizer says, that's him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Y'all don't need to follow me anymore. God's son is the ride. The Messiah is here. Follow him, right? He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus is the man. Follow him. So Jesus is gaining popularity and all these people are being baptized, though the text tells us that it wasn't Jesus himself that was personally doing the baptizing, it was more of his disciples, but all of a sudden the crowds are starting to leave the religious authority. They're following Jesus, and they're like, we don't like this guy. Not only is he calling us out, but the people are following him, and they reject him they want to have nothing to do with him. So they hear that he's gaining in popularity. So Jesus leaves Judea and departs again for Galilee. It's not like Jesus is afraid. He will have some very, very uh, confrontational moments with these guys. But for now, there's a lot of ministry for him to begin. The choosing of the 12, all of these miracles that are going to take place to show that he is the Son of God. Those things haven't occurred just yet in their fullness, and so he's about to start that ministry. So he travels about 80 miles away, and then you get this in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, let me tell you why John says it in that way, as if going through Samaria was, was something awful. You may know some of the history about the Samaritans and, uh, and the Israelites. It's not good. It goes back several hundred years to when the Assyrian army conquered the Israelites. They took them captive and then over time absorbed them into Assyrian culture with their pagan gods and pagan practices. And as they started ha- cohabitating together, marrying, having children, these children were considered half-breed Jews, and because they had Assyrian blood, full-blooded Jews would look at the Sumerians and say, impure and unclean. These two groups did not get along at all. In fact, for a Jew to step foot in Sumerian territory would automatically make that Jew unclean, and then he would have to go through all of these ritualistic purification ceremonies, so they would go way out of their way just to avoid stepping on Sumerian soil. And yet John says Jesus had to go there. Why? Well, as we're going to find out, there's somebody there that needs him. Now, you and I have people in our lives that also need Jesus. Every bit as much as we do. All right. So over the next few days, we're going to get together with family, with friends. And you've heard me say many times before, nobody knows how to push your buttons like family. And, you know, there's a temptation to get drawn into uh, drama. You know, sometimes conversations can get sideways very, very quickly. And there's just like, there's just tension. And we don't often think about showing kindness. I don't remember who said it first, but it's true. If you want to change the world or if you want to change a person don't hammer them with your words melt them with your kindness the reality is (laughs) even our own family members are just like us in that we're all born into a dysfunctional relationship with the God who created us and we all need a savior and the way we introduce them to our savior is the very way Jesus introduces himself to this woman at the well with kindness, respect, and dignity. And it's not always easy, but clearly the need is there. There's a scene in the movie Superman Returns where Superman takes Lois high above the city. It's night, it's dark, so they're way up above the city and you can see the city lights down below and Superman is holding Lois. And he asks her a question. Lois, what do you hear? And she says, nothing. And he says, you wrote that people don't need a savior, but I hear everything. And I hear people crying out for one every single day. Every once in a while, something comes out of Hollywood and you're like, ooh, that's a God moment. (laughs) You know, it's like, that's actually a God statement right there. God hears everything. He sees everything. He sees that the world is broken. It's it's fragmented. It's marred. Everybody wants autonomy. But they want it within the Garden of Eden. Everybody wants to be free from being told what to do. I don't want any kind of command, people telling me what to do. Then don't think of God's commands as rules. Think of them as predictable outcomes. If you disobey the command there's a very predictable outcome to your life. So in this sense, God is actually pretty good, isn't he? It's just like having little kids. You give give your toddler the command, don't play in the street. Why? Because I love you. (laughs) I want you around. See, there are things that I understand that you don't, so we're gonna put some fences around the garden, so to speak. And, and, and see, there, there's, this, there's this lack of critical thought, effective thinking for the person who says, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Okay, I, I want to be totally autonomous, fine. Then we'll drop you off in the middle of the ocean. You can swim in any direction you like. It's not gonna end well for you, right? So even those who crave autonomy don't realize that there has to be some sort of rules, some sort of fences for you to really enjoy the autonomy that you have. And so that's why God lays down rules and restrictions more about this in 2022 as we work through the book of Genesis. God is the author, creator, sustainer of all life. It's his blueprint. Therefore, he knows how life is to be lived best with meaning, purpose, and order that has become completely lost on our world. We are so confused. Genesis answers those questions. Make sure you attend. So isn't it it interesting? You know, Jesus is is going through this area that most people don't go through. He sees this woman who is in need. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, it's an important line. He's sitting beside the well. This is about the sixth hour, which is noon. So two titles for Jesus, Son of God referring to his deity, Son of Man referring to his humanity. The two are one. It's John chapter 1, God in the flesh dwelling among us this is what makes jesus relatable the son of man title by the way son of god is is what uh well when jesus was here on earth he was performing really cool right supernatural acts he was feeding hungry people he was healing the sick but then he begins to tell people your sins are forgiven religious leaders were cool with him yeah healing people and, and feeding people. Okay, that, 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 that's good stuff. That's the work of God. But the second Jesus started saying, your sins are forgiven, everybody's like out of their minds because this is no clearer way for Jesus to say, I come from God. I share the divine nature of God because, you see, only God could offer forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus starts forgiving people of their sins, everybody's like, oh oh, we see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, to sin was an offense against God. He's the one alone who can forgive. So why are you offering forgiveness? It's like a Bill just balls off and just smashes you in the face. And I'm standing by and I said, oh, hey, don't worry. Bill's forgiven. Hey, Bill, all is forgiven. And you're like, wait a minute. He punched me in the face. So Jesus, taking on the divine nature of God, says, yeah, but you see, an offense against God is also an offense against me. So your sins are forgiven. People say no one in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. They couldn't be more wrong. In Jesus' time, culture, and context, he did it in such a forceful way. And so now here's this son of man uh, attribute on display. It's an 80-mile journey, and Jesus is like, I got to sit down. Oh, the legs are getting tired. We learned that the guys go off and get something to eat. Hey, guys, go into town. Everybody's hungry, right? Yeah, we can hear each other's stomachs. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting hungry. Go grab some food in town. Man, it's hot. Oh, that noonday sun overhead. My mouth is getting dry. Man, I need something to drink. See, this is what makes Jesus relatable. See, this is the beauty of the Christian story. There is no other worldview, there is no other faith system that has a Jesus at its center, both divine and human. The humanity makes him relatable. So here he is, he's by the by swell, he's taking a rest. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. With this one question, he bestows honor, dignity, and kindness upon this woman. I'll explain how in a moment. And it's not lost on her, verse 9. Look at her response. The Samaritan woman said to him, time out. How is it that you, first of all, you're a Jew, okay? Um, I'm a Samaritan, uh, and I'm a woman, and you're asking a drink from me. Then you get this parenthetical statement in case you don't understand, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They did not like each other. More so back in the day, unfortunately, women were seen primarily as childbearers and homekeepers, and that was about it. Uh, Women were not encouraged to uh, be out in public. Men in general did not speak to women in public back in the day, uh, unless they were related. Um, especially for a rabbi to speak to a woman. That was something that wasn't done. And then later we learn that this woman has had five husbands, and the one that she's with now is not her own. Uh, This is really, uh, this is is pretty taboo now, what Jesus is doing. That's why when the disciples return, they're kind of like, hey, Jesus, what's up with this conversation? Because it just wasn't done. Um, Jesus doesn't care about those things. He breaks some major taboos in his day in this one encounter. Uh, let me just describe it to you like this. This is, this is like someone from a blue state and someone from a red state. <laughs> Hang on, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> I knew this was going to land. This is like someone from a blue state and someone from a red state sharing the same cup putting their, their lips on the same drinking utensil. Many Samaritans and Jews would rather die of thirst than share the cup. But Jesus was so radical and revolutionary. He says, look, I'm going to come to uh, do something that no one has ever seen before because I'm going to form a family that is not based on race, economics, sex, politics. I'm going to form a family that is unified by the symbol of death, which is a cross. Because the great unifier in my family is we all. Admit that we're sinners in need of a savior. So we're all at the foot of the cross, exposed for who we really are. Hurt, wounded, fragmented, dysfunctional, and adopted into a new family that gives us life. Case in point, this Samaritan woman who's at the well at noon, drawing water, and I'm showing her kindness, love, respect, and honor. This was the pattern of Jesus. You know, it's it's so cool. It's like, you know, he heals a leper, but not from a distance. Jesus could have said, be healed. In the day, it was common belief that to touch a leper was to become a leper. And so what happens is the text, you know, these details are there for a reason. You know, when the text says he touches the leper to heal him, that might be the most shocking part because, again, back in the day, for a Jew to touch a leper was to be rendered unclean. And Jesus is like, I'm not concerned about your rituals right now. This is someone created in the image of God and therefore worthy of honor, respect, and dignity. You know what's been interesting through the pandemic? You know what one industry has thrived? Massage therapy. You know why? Huh? Yeah. People are missing just human touch, and so they, they pay for it. Jesus knows the longings of the human heart, whether it's in 2021 20, or in the first century A.D., he knows, and he ministers directly to it. Some things never change about the human existence. There's a woman that comes in, she's a prostitute. She crashes the party. She anoints Jesus with oil. And all the self-righteous people are like <sighs> And Jesus is like Shh, calm down. You see, she recognizes my value more than you all because I came in here and you guys didn't offer me anything. She's offering everything she has. She's closer to God than you are. And people are just like, man, we better stop trying to put this guy in a box because he just doesn't fit. I've said before, the worst thing you can try to do to Jesus is domesticate him. So, you know, here's this woman. She's an outcast in so many ways, and, and Jesus says to her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Later in the book, John says that Jesus did many, many things. So I always ask myself, why is this story here? I think it's here to illustrate a powerful point. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible for God. What? God loves. God is a giver. Whosoever believes in him should have eternal, eternal life. That's the whosoever part that people were really struggling with because it's like, well, maybe it's just for certain people that Jesus came. It's whosoever believes in him, and this story is an example of that. So Jesus wouldn't base his kingdom kingdom on the basis of race or class or any other such division. Anyone, even this half-breed, promiscuous woman or a thief dying on a cross or a prostitute was welcome to come into God's kingdom, because for Jesus, you know, the person is more important than any category. And I think the problem for some of us is that we just don't see ourselves in these stories in the way we should. It's like we don't see ourselves as a Samaritan woman, when every single one of us is where we are, the Samaritan woman. Uh, We've all done something that has put Jesus on the cross, and yet Jesus is kind and gracious with us. So, Jesus gives himself as this new water source, and he, it's interesting because it's really he's describing himself as, as a spring. How do you get it? First, you have to see that you need it. He explains this in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So he's at the well. He's like, okay, you keep drinking out of this water. you come coming every day. You're going to be thirsty again. Um, everyone has a craving in this world, something that will satisfy their soul. Uh, the challenge is, we, it's like we're drinking out from all the wrong cups, you know. If you've ever run a marathon, you know there are, are hydration stations along the route. You've got water, you've got Gatorade, you've got Powerade. You know what they don't have? Cups of sand. I mean, picture it, right? You're out here at mile 13, you're, halfway, you're like, I'm halfway there, I'm halfway there. This is the perfect time to down some sand. And you're like it creates a greater thirst. And so what happens is even in, or maybe especially in our neck of the woods where there is success and where there's any kind of wealth and we are the rich, you can afford to move from one dusty cup to the next. You're like, this is it, this is it. Oh, no, no, that, that didn't do it, mouth is still dry. But maybe it'll be this cup, let's try this cup, I can afford this cup. And over time it's like nothing's working and so we become uh, bitter and um, we become uh, anxious and we become desperate. And Jesus says the problem is you're drinking from the wrong cup. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. If you grab a cup that has anything other than the water Jesus provides, your soul will be forever thirsty. Well, you know, that, that's, this is really challenging um, because the reality is we were created to have certain desires fulfilled in very specific ways. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He puts it well. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So the desires that you have in and of themselves are not wrong. God created you with those desires. We just pursue those desires in the wrong ways and we are left unfulfilled or bankrupt. He goes on, A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it. To suggest the real thing. So here's a woman who has these desires. She has a desire for purpose, meaning, love, all of these things. And she's trying to pursue it in all these relationships. And Jesus is like, those those are, are cups of sand. What I'm offering you is what will give you life. It's all counterfeit. I'm going to give you the real thing. We long for what's eternal, but we feed on what is mortal. It's like, it's been said that we were created out of The earth, but in fact, we were made for heaven. And so rather than pursue the things of God, we pursue the things of this earth. And it's like, man, the mouth keeps getting drier and drier. So here's the offer, verse 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. I love it because you have a well, and Jesus says, the water I give is like a spring. Big difference, back in the day they had wells, they had cisterns, cisterns would collect rainwater, but the problem is the sun would come and dry up the water that's in the cistern. The big difference is that with a spring, it's continuously bubbling up, right? It's always bubbling up to the surface, and if there's contaminants inside the spring, then everything downstream is going to be contaminated as well. So Jesus is offering this, this pure spring. And really what he's talking about, back in the ancient world, water was a metaphor for life. And that's really what Jesus is saying. He's like, you've tried to live life on your own terms. Now take my life up into your life, right? Replace the spring of your heart with the spring of my heart. And we'll, we'll see what happens. The other thing, the interesting thing about a spring is, you know, you, you, can, you can throw rocks on top of it. You can throw dirt on it, and and it it restricts the flow, but only for a while, because eventually it's going to keep bubbling up and coming out. Now, the reality is, even for many believers, is we find ourselves throwing dirt on top of the spring that Jesus gives us, which is another way of saying, again, we try to live our lives apart from God, we don't want to obey God's rules and commands. We think that they're restrictive when they actually lead to life. And we just don't really know what's best for us. We're like that toddler playing in the street. We don't want any walls. We don't want any rules. And God's like, this is in your best interest. Let the spring of Jesus flow. Take his life up into yours, and you will be satisfied. So I don't know where you're at this, th- this morning, but maybe you're here, and, and you're like... Um, I recognize I have all these needs for meaning, purpose, love. Uh, Jesus fulfills all those, unlike any other human experience can give you. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, hey, listen, I've tapped into that spring, but I've been just shoveling stuff on top of it. (laughs) And, And it's getting kind of dirty, and now there's a lot of dirt that's flowing downstream, and I just need to sort of clean it up. I don't know where you're at right now, but I'm going to ask you to do this just to free yourself from any distraction. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just take the last minute and do just a little business with God, whatever that is. And maybe you're here and you are, you're like, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about this, but what I do know is I can relate to that cup of sand because it's just, my life is dry. Again, maybe you're here and you're like, listen, I remember what that spring was like when it was flowing pure, but through my own actions, I've been diluting it. Either way, it begins with a prayer and you simply say to God, God, I understand that Jesus came to free me from all of those things in life that robbed me of life, that starved my soul Lord, even during this season, there will be different temptations in different directions. Lord, I pray that we would adopt the very heart of Jesus as we interact with those around us. Father, we ask that even as we leave this place today, your spirit would speak so powerfully. Lord, that we would leave here changed and different. Lord, every week we gather together, it's so obvious that your spirit's presence is real. God, we just ask that we would respond to the Spirit's voice in our lives in a way that exalts Jesus. We pray this season for all the churches all over the valley, all over the world that are going to be lifting up Jesus and all of the things that are going to be shared about who he is and what he came to do. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing upon all that we say, do, and think. As always, it's always for your glory and for your fame, Jesus. And we ask it In the one and only name, that name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. amen.